Well, here we've got James chapter 2, and I'd like to just remind us of what I uh, said when we talked about James chapter 1, and I suggested that the James that's writing here is the James who was the leader of the early church, and that there's a lot of connection between the letter of James and the letter which was written by James and the other apostles after the conference in Acts 15, where the whole brotherhood of believers, who were mainly Jewish at that time, faced, I suppose, their first kind of potential division because they didn't know what to do with Gentiles who wanted to be baptized and some felt that they should be circumcised and made to keep all the law of Moses and others like Paul said, no, circumcision is irrelevant they don't have to be circumcised and they don't have to keep all the law and just to, uh, just to remind you of a couple of the connections we, uh, we made um, I pointed out there's a number of Greek words that occur only in Acts 15 and in in James, three or four of them, and a few other things, but the way the letter begins, greeting, in James 1 verse 1, this is exactly how the the letter of Acts 15.34, sorry, 15.23 began, when he says here in chapter 2 verse 5, listen my brothers, this is exactly what James said in Acts 15.13, he talks here in James 2 verse 7 about the name that was called upon us at baptism and he makes that same point in Acts 15:17, where he says that God's name has been called upon the Gentiles and the way that the letter of Acts 15 uh, sort of says well you don't have to keep the law but you've got to be sensitive to separation from the world that's very much James 1:27, where he says all you've got to do is keep yourself unspotted from the world. And I made the point that James is, uh, is now writing another letter, and everyone would have thought, ah, oh, yeah, this is all going to be on about the same old, same old. And in fact, no. What we have here in James is a lot of practical exhortation to very personal spirituality. And this is really a great example that there the, the brotherhood was potentially divided, not only between Jews and Gentiles, but amongst the Jewish Christians, those who thought that the uh, the liberal end, like Paul, were kind of selling out by tolerating the Gentiles, like always happens in division, it's not just between two groups, within the uh, the groups that divide, there are the, the liberals and the conservatives who in turn also divide, because they feel that uh, they're group is being too liberal or too strict or whatever with another group of brethren. And we we know the scene. And that sort of spirit of division has caused countless people to make shipwreck of their faith, particularly those new in the faith. And so James does a very wise thing when he writes this letter, which is all about personal individual spirituality, that that is the bottom line spiritual mindedness, response to the word of the gospel in our own hearts and that's really what is needed really and it seems that James was the first inspired letter that was uh, formally sent out uh, after of course the, the letter sent out in Acts 15 and so there's a number of connections though with Paul's later writings and I think that James was sort of a practical letter about life in Christ and Paul's allusions to it are not contradictory of it as some would have they're simply drawing out uh, other aspects and implications of what James has said so then with that in mind let's get our eyes down to the text here in James 2 verse 1 
My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. Now, that second Lord there is not actually in the original. It, the text really reads, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ of glory, as if Jesus is the glory of God. And that, of course, is a point that Paul very often brings out in his writings, particularly 2 Corinthians 3. And the context of what James is saying is that because of the very high exaltation of Jesus, therefore don't have respect of persons. His exaltation is so high, the glory, as of the only begotten of the Father, which he has now been given, is so great that all interpersonal friction and all uh, respect of persons one over another should be a thing of the past. And, of course, he is saying this in the whole context of the, uh, the problem that there had been with people dividing within the, within the brotherhood over this issue of circumcision and the Gentiles. And you might remember in Galatians chapter 1, <clears throat> when Paul uh, outlines the history of uh, the, the argument, he talks about how even Peter stopped breaking bread with the Gentiles because he had respect of persons. He respected those who supposedly came from James, from the hard line of the, uh, of the brotherhood, and he stopped breaking bread with, with the Gentile believers. And so here James is saying, I think he may be subtly dissociating himself from those who claim to have come in his name, uh, by saying, look, because of the height of the glory and exaltation of the Lord Jesus, there should be no respect of persons. And of course, Peter used the very same term in Acts 10.34 when he uh, explains how the first Gentiles were baptized, and Cornelius and, and them, and how they were accepted without being circumcised and without having a promise to keep the Jewish law. And he says, Acts 10.34, that he perceived that God is no respecter of persons, and therefore Jew and Gentile can be together within the body of Christ. Now, we here in our context are trying to extract principle, because we don't live in a brotherhood that has exactly the same issues. But the principle is that if we are personally awed by the height of the Lord's exaltation, this means that all respecting of the person of another suddenly becomes irrelevant. And it only becomes a, an item for us if we are not, in fact, awed by Jesus personally. Remem remembering, of course, that he was one of us, that he rose up so far, that he was not a divine comet, as it were, that pre-existed and hit the earth for 33 years and sped off again, but that he was one of our nature, born as one of us with all our... Uh, background problems, issues, dysfunctions, etc., without same temptations and desire uh, to, to live humanly, and yet he overcame. And therefore, because of his humanity, he has, as Philippians 2 points out, he has been so highly exalted. And incidentally, Philippians 2, that hymn there about the exaltation of Jesus, is such a shame that that's been made such a theological battleground by those who who seem to want to find support for the Trinity in, in that hymn, the whole practical context of that, and it has a practical context, is Paul telling the Philippians to be like-minded, to not be divided, to have the mind which was in Christ Jesus, who was 
humiliated and yet exalted. And so this then is our, our pattern. He is our pattern. And because he has got there, because he has set us, if you like, the path to glory, we therefore should not have this respect of persons. Now, of course, the Christian community was immature at that time. You can see chapter 2, verse 2, if anyone comes into your synagogue dressed nicely, etc., then don't have respect to him, because, verse 1, God is not respectful of persons. So they were still in the synagogue system. And the ecclesias are actually called synagogues in Acts 6, verse 9, and that well-known passage in Hebrews 10:25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together, it's the word synagogue, not forsaking the synagoguing of yourselves together. Now Jesus had said that the time will come when they will throw you out of the synagogues. And that would imply that he intended the early Christians to remain within the synagogue until such time as they were chucked out. So once and for all, I think that puts the lid on any idea of guilt by association and that we can't uh, be associated with those who might believe slightly differently to us on some point or another. Uh, That is not the the spirit of Jesus. He says that we are to be um, like yeast that's hidden in the uh, the flour, in the meal, and which, by slow influence, will influence from within. And if only that had been understood uh, more clearly, there would not be this whole guilt by association, we've got to separate from you sort of attitude. But I think there is a subtext to what James says here about having respect to the rich man and despising the person in vile clothing. And I think that uh, the real point of what he's saying is not simply don't respect a guy just because he's got a lot of uh, gold rings on his fingers, but don't despise somebody who apparently is dressed in filthy clothing, because that word uh, translated filthy, it's used elsewhere nearly always in a moral sense. In fact, it's uh, in chapter 1, verse 21, he talks about all uh, filthiness uh, that should be laid aside. And now he says, if somebody comes into your <coughs> synagogue, into your ecclesia, um, don't uh, despise the person, verse 2, who is in vile raiment, in filthy clothing. And uh, it's the same word, filthiness of the flesh, in First Peter 3.21, and uh, that we've got to put away uh, the, uh, the vile clothing and be dressed in 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 good clothing, Revelation 22.11. And so I would say that the person dressed in vile clothing is someone who you may spiritually despise. I think that's the subtext here. And likewise, when he talks in the AV, in verse 1, about the man who comes in dressed in goodly apparel, um, verse 3, gay clothing, the AV says, that really means dazzling white clothing, and it's uh, the same word used about the white linen, the dazzling linen, if you like, the gay linen, the dazzling white, that's the idea, uh, linen in which the saints will be clothed. That's Revelation 15:6, 19, verse 8. And so, I think that the, the subtext is that, yeah, don't disrespect people because they're wealthy, but I, I don't think 
uh, people are that primitive in their thinking. It may have been an, an issue in a literal sense. But he, he says that by doing this, verse 4, you are becoming judges of evil thoughts. Now, that idea of you becoming a judge uh, is, I think, more relevant to the idea of spiritual judgment. That you're saying to the person who appears to be all wonderfully spiritual, yeah, yes, you, you have a good place, and the one who appears to be in the vile raiment, the one who still appears to be uh, in the flesh, as it were, no, 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 you, you sit in this bad place uh, in the ecclesia. I think what he's saying is that you cannot say that. And when, they, when it says here that they, they give him a good place, verse 3, this is very similar to the parable of the, the seats at the wedding, where Jesus says the one who takes the lowest place will be given the good place. And uh, good there, uh, that really is uh, the word for virtuous, or morally kind of good or worthy. So I think what he's saying is you cannot judge, and you cannot apportion places within the ecclesia. And the allusion is, as so often in James, back to the teaching of Jesus himself, that we ought to come into the Ecclesia and assume that we should have the lowest place, because we are not worthy of anything more than that. And the one who says, have the good place, come up higher, is only Jesus. And yet this sort of thing goes on, this, this uh, judging. We all are tempted to do it, to form gut opinions. He says in verse 7 that we all bear that worthy name by which we are called, or that is called upon you. And I think that's an allusion to baptism, that by baptism into the name, into that worthy name, we are made worthy. In that, the name is essentially the characteristics. And when God declared his name to Moses... He basically stated all his characteristics, a God full of grace, of mercy, compassion, uh, not turning a blind eye to sin, uh, etc. And so all those characteristics of the Lord Jesus, and his characteristics were those of God, those, that, that name, those elements of the name, are called upon us. And so I think he's saying that because of the wonder of our baptism, of imputed righteousness that works through our having his name called upon us. Therefore, he's saying, we ought to therefore forget, once and for all, assigning places within the ecclesia on a spiritual, on a spiritual basis, that you're better than this one. It's not to say that we turn a blind eye. And he talks in very sober terms in verse 12 about the reality of future judgment. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. The implication is that, well it's more than implication, Jesus says, by your words you will be justified, by your words you will be condemned. So then the day of judgment is going to feature in some form a reciting back to us of our words. And so words are that important, and uh, this, as you know, is a, a theme of James about the, the danger of the tongue, that we can so easily assume that really uh, it doesn't really matter what we say, it's only words, and it's actions which are more important. 
But not so, because for one thing, words, as you learn from the book of Job, words are extremely powerful and can destroy and do destroy people. And they also, the other way, can affirm people and strengthen people tremendously. Now, finally then, he, he talks about faith and works, and on a surface level, of course, this would appear to contradict what Paul is saying in, in Romans 4 when he seems to emphasize it is, it is faith and not works. And I think the similarities are so close that I think Paul is alluding to, to James here, but not, not at all to, to contradict him. And even James himself is not saying that it's purely by works. He's, I think, saying that faith and works go together. That it is impossible to say, verse 15, to your naked and destitute brother, depart in peace and be warmed and filled, but not do anything for them. In other words, if you really claim that you are believing that, that you say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, the implication in the context is, you say that with faith. God is going to somehow warm and fill you. I believe this. Okay, but if you don't do anything, then where is your faith? Paul says in Galatians 5.6, again I think alluding to James here, that faith works by love. And in fact, in James 2.19, I think James is really saying the same thing. You believe that God is one, you do well, the RV says. So if you believe that God is one, for example, then you will do well. It is not just possible to say, yeah, sure, I believe in the unity of God and I'm not a Trinitarian, etc., uh, so therefore my faith is okay. It must, if it's real faith, issue in something. Otherwise, he says, verse 20 in the RV, that faith is barren. And he gives the example of Abraham, who was also barren, and yet was justified in the end uh, by the fact that he offered Isaac on the altar. So then, what is it then? Is it faith or works? Well, that's looking at it, I think, the, the wrong way. If we believe <clears throat> the most basic elements of the gospel that were preached to Abraham, that we really will live forever in God's kingdom on earth, not according to our deeds, but according to his grace, and that we believe that we will receive these blessings, the blessing, obviously, of forgiveness of sin. If we're going to live forever and eternally inherit the earth, we will have to be forgiven of our sin. That will have to be dealt with. And so that's one of the blessings. And Acts 3, 25, 26 interprets the blessing to Abraham as being turned away from our iniquities. So then, if you really believe that, that I am going to live forever. You look at the, the blood of the covenant, and you see there God's underlining, as it were, of his promise that was given to Abraham to give us eternal life. And we think, wow, that is for true and for real for me. You cannot be passive. You cannot just shrug and walk away. If you really believe that, you will, in, a in action, show that. Not in that the works you do as a result of that are required for salvation. But what I'm saying is that if you perceive the wonder of it all, there is no way that you can ever be passive ever again. And I just want to conclude with that at verse 21. Was not Abraham justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? 
Now, Abraham looked up at the stars years before that and believed what God had said, that so shall your seed be. And because of his faith in that, he therefore offered Isaac his son upon the altar. And so, uh, as James says here, the two things go hand in hand. And, of course, the very fact that Abraham slept with Sarah when they were so old, um, that in itself was a work of faith. That wasn't just a shrugging and saying, oh yes, are we going to have a child, are we? I see. Um, He did something, concrete and actual. And I, I put a lot of store on Greek tenses, because unlike in Hebrew, Greek tenses are highly specific. He had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. Well, he did not offer Isaac in the full sense of that. He was prepared to. And God counted his intention as if he had done it. And, of course, Jesus teaches the same when he talks about the value of human thoughts, that intention is really seen as action. And, positively, that means that no matter how frustrated and limited we are by our circumstance, it may be wealth, it may be health, it may be family situation, it can be all sorts of things that may limit us. If you have the desire, the stremlinia uh, in the Russian, the uh, ambition, I suppose, the uh, yeah, the the ambition, the, the desire to do things for God, as a result of the outpouring of thankfulness that you have because of your faith that you will be saved, God counts that as if you have done it. So that in itself, from the way that James talks about, he had offered Isaac his son, that indicates again that it's not of works. It is of intention, which arises out of a faithful, grateful response. So then the challenge for us today then is to go away believing certainly that if Jesus comes back at this moment because of his death for me and my association and identity with that I will be saved and therefore we want to respond and of course we say well I can't I've got this problem and I'd love to be able to do this that or the other but I can't because of this that or the other that's fine but the important thing is to not let the limitations that surround you as they surround every one of us to not let those limitations stop you dreaming to not let those limitations take away your desire your fervent desire to do that because it will be counted to you as if you have